Section 3 of The Rover, Volume 1, Number 24. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Greg Giordano. The Rover, Volume 1, Number 24. Edited by Seba Smith and Lawrence Labrie. Section 3. THE HAUNTED MANOR HOUSE The mail coach has just set me down at the entrance to a dreary and unweeded avenue. There was a double row of dark elms, interspersed with beech, neither very bowery nor very umbrageous, though as I passed, they saluted me with a rich shower of wet leaves, and shook their bare arms, growling as the loud sough of the wind went through their decayed branches the old house was before me its numerous and irregularly contrived compartments in front were streaked in black and white zigzags vandyked i think the fairest jewels of the creation call this chaste and elegant ornament it was near the close of a dark autumnal day and a mass of gable ends stood sharp and erect against the wild and lowering sky. Each of these pinnacles could once boast of its admired and appropriate ornament, a little weathercock, but they had cast off their gilded plumage forever, and fallen from their high estate like the once neatly trimmed mansion which I was now visiting. A magpie was perched upon a huge stack of chimneys, his black and white plumage seemed perfectly in character with the mottled edifice at his feet. Perhaps he was the wraith, the departing vision of the decaying fabric, an apparition, unsubstantial as the honors and dignities of the ancient and revered house of Etherington. I looked eagerly at the long, low casements. A faint glimmer was visible. It proceeded only from the wan reflection of a sickly sunbeam behind me, struggling through the cleft of a dark hail cloud. It was the window where in my boyhood I had often peeped at the village clock through my little telescope. It was the nursery chamber, and no wonder that it was regarded with feelings of the deepest interest. Here the first dawnings of reason broke in upon my soul. The first faint gleams of intelligence awakened me from a state of infantine unconsciousness. It was here that I first drank eagerly of the fresh rills of knowledge. Here my imagination, ardent and unrepressed, first plumed its wings for flight, and I stepped forth over its thresholds into a world long since tried and found as unsatisfying and unreal as the false glimmer that now mocked me from the hall of my father's. A truce to sentiment, I came hither, it may be, for a different purpose. A temporary gush will occasionally spring up from the first wellhead of our affections. However homely and seemingly ill-adapted in outward show and character for giving birth to those feelings, generally designated by the epithet romantic, the place where we first breathed, where our ideas were first molded, formed, and assimilated, as it were, to the condition of the surrounding atmosphere, their very shape and color determined by the medium in which they first sprung. 
the casual recurrence of a scene like this, forming part and parcel of our very existence, and incorporated with the very fabric of our thoughts, must, in spite of all subsequent impressions, revive those feelings, however long they may have been dormant, with a force and vividness which the bare recollection can never excite. The garden gate stood open. The initials of my name, still legible, appeared rudely carved on the posts. A boyish propensity, which most of us have indulged, and I well remember ministering to its gratification, wherever I durst hazard the experiment, when first initiated into the mystery of hewing out these important letters with a rusty penknife. Not a creature was stirring, and the nature of the present occupants, whether sylphs, gnomes, or genii, was a question not at all, as it yet appeared in a train for solution. The front door was closed, but as I knew every turn and corner about the house, and made doubt of soon finding out its inmates, if any of them were in the neighborhood. I worked my way through the garden, knee-deep and rank with weed, for the purpose of reconnoitering the back offices. I steered pretty cautiously past what memory, that great dealer in hyperbole, had hitherto pretty generally contrived to picture as a huge lake, now, to my astonishment, dwindled into a duck-pond, but not without danger from its slippery margin. It still reposed under the shadow of the cherry-tree, once the harbinger of delight, as the returning season gave intimation of another bountiful supply of fruit. Its gnarled stump, now stunted and decaying, had scarcely one token of life upon its scattered branches. Following a narrow walk, nearly obliterated, I entered a paved court. The first tramp awoke a train of echoes that seemed as though they had slumbered since my departure, and now started from their sleep, to greet or to admonish the returning truant. Grass and luxuriant tufts, capriciously disposed, grew about in large patches. The breeze passed heavily by, rustling the dark swaths and murmuring fitfully as it departed. Desolation seemed to have marked the spot for her own, the grim abode of solitude and despair. During twenty years' sojourn in a strange land, memory had still, with untiring delight, painted the old mansion in all its primeval primness and simplicity, fresh as I had left it, full of buoyancy and delight, to take possession of the paradise which imagination had created. I had indeed been informed that at my father's death it became the habitation of a stranger, but no intelligence as to its present condition had ever reached me. Being at L, and only some fifty miles distant, I could not resist the temptation of once more gazing on the old manor house, and of comparing its present aspect with that but too faithfully engrafted on my recollections. To all appearance, the house was tenantless. I tried the door of a side kitchen or scullery. It was fastened, but the rusty bolts yielded to no very forcible pressure, and I once more penetrated into the kitchen. That exhaustless magazine, which had furnished ham and eggs, greens and bacon, with other sundry and necessary condiments, thereto appertaining to the progenitors of our race for at least two centuries, 
a marvelous change. To me it appeared as if wrought in a moment, so recently had memory reinstated the scenes of my youth and all their pristine splendor. Now no smoke rolled lazily away from the heavy billet. No blaze greeted my sight. No savory steam regaled the sense. Dark, cheerless cold. The long bars emitted no radiance. The hearth unswept, on which Growler once panted with health and fatness. Though night was fast approaching, I could not resist the temptation of once more exploring the deserted chamber, the scene of many a youthful frolic. I sprang with reckless facility up the vast staircase. The shallow steps were not sufficiently accommodating to my impatience, and I leaped, rather than ran, with the intention of paying my first visit to that cockane of childhood, that paradise of little fools, the nursery. How small, dwindled almost into a span, appeared that once mighty and almost boundless apartment, every nook of which was a separate territory, every drawer and cupboard the boundary of another kingdom. Three or four strides brought me to the window. The village steeple still rose abruptly from the dark fir trees, peacefully reposing in the dim and heavy twilight. The clock was chiming. What a host of recollections were awakened at the sound. Days and hours, long forgotten, seemed to rise up at its voice, like the spirits of the departed sweeping by, awful and indistinct. These impressions soon became more vivid. They rushed on with greater rapidity. I turned from the window and was startled at the sudden moving of a shadow. It was a faint, long, drawn figure of myself, on the floor and opposite wall. Ashamed of my fears, I was preparing to quit the apartment, when my attention was arrested by a drawing which I had once scrawled, and stuck against the wall with all the ardor of a first achievement. It owed its preservation to an unlucky but effectual contrivance of mine, for securing its perpetuity, a paste-brush, purloined from the kitchen, had made all fast, and the piece, impregnable to all attacks, withstood every effort for its removal. In fact, this could not be accomplished without at the same time tearing off a portion from the dingy papering of the room, and leaving a disagreeable void, instead of my sprawling performance. With the less evil it appeared, each succeeding occupant had been contented, and the drawing stood its ground in spite of dust and dilapidation. I felt wishful for the possession of so valuable a memorial of past exploits. I examined it again and again, but not a single corner betrayed symptoms of lesion. It stuck bolt upright, and the dun squat figures portrayed on it appeared to leer at me most provokingly. Not a slip or tear presented itself as vantage ground for the projected attack and I had no other resource left of getting possession than what may be denominated the Caesarean mode. I accordingly took out my knife and commenced operations by cutting out, at the same time, a portion of the ornamental papering from the wall, commensurate with the picture. I looked upon it with a sort of superstitious reverence, and I have always thought that the strong and eager impulse I felt for the possession of this hideous daub proceeded from a far different source than mere fondness for the memorials of childhood. Be that as it may, I am a firm believer in a special providence, 
and that, too, as discovered in the most trivial as well as the most important concerns of life. It was while cutting down upon what seemed like wainscoting, over which the room had been papered, that my knife glanced on something much harder than the rest. Turning aside my spoils, I saw what through the dusk appeared, very like the hinge of a concealed door. My curiosity was roused, and I made a hasty pull, which at once drew down a mighty fragment from the wall, consisting of plaster, paper, and rotten canvas, and some minutes elapsed, ere the subsiding cloud of dust enabled me to discern the terra incognita I had just uncovered. Sure enough there was a door, and as surely did the spirit of enterprise prompt me to open it. With difficulty I accomplished my purpose. It yielded at length to my efforts, but the noise of the half-corroded hinges, grating and shrieking on the rusty pivots, may be conceived as sufficiently dismal and appalling. I know not if once at least I did not draw back, or let go my hold, incontinently as the din grew long and loud. I own, without hesitation, that I turned away my head from the opening, as it became wider and wider at every pull, and it required a considerable effort before I could summon the requisite courage to look into the gap. My head seemed as difficult to move as the door. I cannot say that I was absolutely afraid of ghosts, but I was afraid of a peep from behind the door, afraid of being frightened. At length, with desperate boldness, I thrust my head plump into the chasm. Now, reader, what was it, thinkest thou, that I beheld? Thy speculation on this subject will, of course, depend entirely upon thy nerves and constitution, likewise upon thy course of education and habits of study. If, as in all probability thou art of the gender feminine, and little addicted to romance, poetry, and the like, then wilt thou tickle thine imagination with delightful guesses about a white lady, a lamp, and a dagger. If thy brain hath been steeped in the savory brine of novel-reading and sentimentality, then will thy thoughts be of gloomy rooms, prisoners immured by unfeeling relatives, etc. Shouldst thou happen to be cast in a more matter-of-fact mould, strongly addicted to cry, FUDGE! at every display of trickery and folly, then mayest thou opine what any man with three grains of sense would have guessed long since there was nothing but a cupboard. I may thus frame solutions proper to every character and temperament. As the fool thinks, etc., is a trite proverb, but suffice it to say, not one of these fancies and speculations I take upon myself to affirm is correct. As before mentioned, I thrust my head suddenly into the chasm, more startled at the noise produced by the celerity of my own motions than I could possibly be at anything that was visible. As far as the darkness would permit, I explored the interior, which, after all, is neither more nor less than a small closet. From what cause it had been shut out from the apartment to which it belonged, it were vain to conjecture. All that was really cognizant to the senses presented itself in the shape of a shallow closet, some four feet by two, utterly unfurnished, save with some inches of accumulated dust and rubbish that made it a work of great peril to grope out the fact of its otherwise absolute emptiness. 
This discovery, like many other notable enterprises, seemed to lead to nothing. I stepped out of my den, reeking with spoils which I had much rather left undisturbed in their dark recesses. Preparing for my departure, and a visit to my relation in the village, who as yet had no other intimation of my arrival than a hasty note, to apprise him that I had once more set foot on English ground, and intended to visit him before my return. I stepped again to the window. Darkness was fast gathering about me. A heavy scud was driven rapidly across the heavens, and the wind wailed in short and mournful gusts past the chamber. The avenue was just visible from the spot where I stood, and looking down, I thought I could discern more than one dark object moving apparently toward the house. It may be readily conceived that I gazed with more than ordinary interest as they approached, and it was not long ere two beings in human habiliments were distinctly seen at a short distance from the gate by which I had entered. Feeling myself an intruder, and not being very satisfactorily prepared to account for my forcible entry into the premises, and the injury I had committed on the property of a stranger, I drew hastily aside, determined to effect a retreat whenever and wherever it might be in my power. Door and window alternately presented themselves for the accomplishment of this unpleasant purpose. But before I could satisfy myself as to which was the more eligible offer, as doubters generally do contrive it, I lost all chance of availing myself of either. Bacillus to census, easier in than out, etc., occurred to me, and many other classical allusions, much more appropriate than agreeable. I heard voices and footsteps in the hall. The stairs creaked, and it was but too evident they were coming. Surely, thought I, these gentry have noses like the sleuth-hound, and I made no doubt, but they would undeviatingly follow them into the very scene of my labors. And what excuse could I make for the havoc I had committed? I stood stupefied and unable to move. The thoughts of being hauled neck and heels before the next justice, on a charge of housebreaking, mayhap, committed to prison, tried, perhaps, and the sequel was more than even imagination durst conceive. Recoiling in horror from the picture, it was with something like instinctive desperation that I flew to the little closet and shut myself in, with all the speed and precision my fears would allow. Sure enough, the brutes were making the best of their way into the chamber, and every moment I expected they would track their victim to his hiding place. After a few moments of inconceivable agony, I was relieved at finding from their conversation that no notion was entertained, at present, of any witness to their proceedings. I tell thee, Gilbert, these rusty locks can keep nothing safe. It is but some few months since we were here. Thou knowest the doors were all fast. The kitchen door post is now as rotten as touchwood. No bolt will fasten it. Nail it up, nail them all up, growled Gilbert. Nobody will live here now, or else set fire to it. It'll make a rare bonfire to burn that ugly old will in. A boisterous laugh here broke from the remorseless Gilbert. It fell upon my ears, something with which I had once been disagreeably familiar. The voice of the first speaker, too, seemed to sound like the echoes of childhood. A friendly chink permitted me to gain the information I sought. There stood my uncle and his trusty familiar. 
In my youth I had contracted a somewhat unaccountable aversion to the latter personage. I well remembered his downcast gray eye, deprived of its fellow, and the malignant pleasure he took in thwarting and disturbing my childish amusements. This prepossessing cyclop held a tinder-box, and was preparing to light a match. My uncle's figure I could not mistake. A score of winters had cast their shadows on his brow since we had separated, but he still stood as he was wont, tall, erect, and muscular, though age had slightly drooped his proud forehead, and I could discern his long-lapped waistcoat somewhat less conspicuous in front. He was my mother's brother, and the only surviving relative on whom I had any claim. My fears were set at rest, but curiosity stole into their place. I felt an irrepressible inclination to watch their proceedings, though eavesdropping was a procedure that I abhorred. I should, I am confident, at least I hope so, have immediately discovered myself, and not a single word which I had overheard prevented me. The will to which they had alluded might to me, perhaps, be an object of no trivial importance. I wish with all my heart it weren't burnt, said my uncle. The will or the house, peevishly retorted Gilbert. Both, cried the other, with an emphasis and expression that made me tremble. If we burn the house, the papers will not rise out of it. Depend on't, master, continued Gilbert, and that box in the next closet will not be like Goody Blake's salamander that she talks about. I began to feel particularly uncomfortable. I wish they had all been burnt long ago, said my honest uncle. After a pause he went on, this scapegoat nephew of mine will be here shortly. For fear of accidents, accidents, I say, Gilbert, it were better to have all safe. Who knows what may be lurking in the old house, to rise up some day as a witness against us. I intend either to pull it down or set fire to it. We'll make sure of the will first. A rambling jackanapes of a nephew, said Gilbert. I hope the fishes have been at supper on him before now. We never thought, Master, he could be alive, as he sent no word about his being either alive or dead. But I guess, continued this amiable servant, he might have stayed longer and you wouldn't have fretted for his company. Listeners hear no good of themselves, but I determined to reward the old villain very shortly for his good wishes. Gilbert, when there's work to do, thou art always readier with thy tongue than with thy fingers. Look, the match has gone out twice. Leaving off puffing and fetch the box, I'll manage the candle. I began to feel a strange sensation rambling about me. Gilbert left the room, however, and I applied myself with redoubled diligence to the crevice. My dishonest relation proceeded to revive the expiring sparks. The light shone full upon his hard features. It might be fancy, but guilt, broad, legible, remorseless guilt, seemed to mark every inflection of his visage. His brow contracted, his eye turned cautiously and fearfully round the apartment, and more than once rested upon the gap I had made. I saw him strike his hand upon his puckered brow, and a stifled groan escaped him but as if ashamed of his better feelings, he clenched it in an attitude of defiance, and listened eagerly for the return of his servant. The slow footsteps of Gilbert soon announced his approach, and apparently with some heavy burden. He threw it on the floor, and I heard a key applied and the rusty wards 
answering to the touch. The business in which they were now engaged was out of my limited sphere of vision. I think, master, the damps will soon ding down the old house. Look at the wall. The paper hangs for all the world like a clerk's wig. <laughs> if we should burn the whole biggin, we'd ride it out of the ghosts. Would they stand fire, think you, or be off to cooler quarters? Hush, Gilbert, thou art wicked enough to bring a whole legion upon us, if they be within hearing. I always seem to treat these stories with contempt. Gilbert, but I never could very well account for the noises that old Dobbins and his wife heard. Thou knowest he was driven out of the house by them. People wondered that I did not come and live here, instead of letting it run to ruin. It's pretty generally thought that I fear nothing, man nor devil. But, oh, here it is. Here is the will. I care nothing for the rest, provided this be cancelled. Aye, master. They said the ghost never left off scratching as long as anybody was in the room. Which room was it, I wonder? I never thought on't to inquire, but I don't like this a bit. It runs in my head. It is the very place, and behind that wall, too, where it took up its quarters, like as it might be just at back of the paper there. Think you, master, the old tyke has pulled it down with scratching? Gilbert, said my uncle solemnly, I don't like these jests of thine. Save them, I prithee, for fitter subjects. The will is what we came for. Let us dispose of that quietly, and I promise thee I'll never set foot here again. As he spoke, he approached the candle. It was just within my view, and opened the will, that it might yield more readily to the blaze. I watched him evidently preparing to consume a document with which I felt convinced my welfare and interests were intimately connected. There was not a moment to be lost, but how to get possession was no easy contrivance. If I sallied forth to its rescue, they might murder me, or at least prevent its falling into my hands. This plan could only prolong its existence a few moments, and would, to a certainty, ensure its eventual destruction. Gilbert's dissertation on the occupations and amusements of the ghost came very opportunely to my aid, and immediately I put into execution what now appeared my only hope of its safety. Just as a corner of the paper was entering the flame, I gave a pretty loud scratch, at the same time anxiously observing the effect it might produce. I was overjoyed to find the Inui intimidated, at least by the first fire. Another volley, and another succeeded, until even the skeptical Gilbert was dismayed. My uncle seemed riveted to the spot. His hands widely disparted, said the flame, and his destined prey were now pretty far asunder. Neither of the culprits spoke, and I hoped that little more would be necessary to rout them fairly from the field. And yet, they did not seem disposed to move and I was afraid of a rally, should reason get the better of their fears. Rats! Rats! shouted Gilbert. We'll singe their tails for them. The scratching ceased. Again the paper was approaching to its dreaded catastrophe. Beware! I cried, in a deep and sepulchral tone that startled even the utterer. What effect it had produced on my auditory I was left alone to conjecture. The candle dropped from the incendiary's grasp, and the spoil was left a prey to the bugbear that possessed their imaginations. 
with feelings of unmixed delight, I heard them clear the stairs at a few leaps, run through the hall, and soon afterward a terrific bellow from Gilbert announced their descent into the avenue. Luckily the light was not extinct, and I lost no time in taking possession of the document, which I considered of the most importance. A number of loose papers, the contents of a huge trunk, were scattered about, but my attention was more particularly directed to the paper, which had been the object of my uncle's visit to Etherington House. To my great joy, this was neither less nor more than my father's will, witnessed and sealed in due form, wherein the possessions of my ancestors were conveyed, absolutely and unconditionally, without entail, unencumbered, and unembarrassed to me and my assigns. I thought it most likely that the papers in and about the trunk might be of use, either as corroborative evidence, in case my uncle should choose to litigate the point and brand the original document as a forgery, or as a direct testimony to the validity of my claim. I was rather puzzled in what manner to convey them from the place, so as not to excite suspicion, should the two worthies return. I was pretty certain they would not leave matters as they now stood, when their fears were allayed and daylight would probably impart sufficient courage to induce them to repeat their visit. On finding the papers removed, the nature of this night's ghostly admonition would immediately be guessed, and measures taken to thwart any proceedings which it might be in my power to adopt. To prevent discovery I hit upon the following expedient. I sorted out the waste paper, a considerable quantity of which served as envelopes to the rest, setting fire to it, in such a manner that the contents of the trunk might appear to have been destroyed by the falling of the candle. I succeeded very much to my own satisfaction. Disturbed and agonized as my feelings had been during the discovery, the idea of having defeated the plan of my iniquitous relative gave a zest to my acquisitions, almost as great as if I had already taken possession of my paternal inheritance. Before I left the apartment, I poured out my heart in thanksgivings to that unseen power whose hand, I am fairly convinced, brought me thither at so critical a moment to frustrate the schemes and machinations of the enemy. Bundling up the papers, my knowledge of the vicinity enabled me to reach a small tavern in the neighborhood without the risk of being recognized. Here I continued two or three days, examining the documents with the assistance of an honest limb of the law from W. He entertained considerable doubts as to the issue of a trial, feeling convinced that a forged will would be prepared, if not already in existence, and that my relative would not relinquish his fraudulent claim, should the law be openly appealed to. Mr. Laudatat strongly recommended that proceedings of a different nature should be first tried, in hopes of enclosing the villain in his own toils and these, if successful, would save the uncertain and expensive process of a suit. I felt unwilling to adopt any mode of attack but that of open warfare, and urged that possession of the real will would be sufficient to reinstate me as the lawful heir. The man of law smiled. He inquired how I should be able to prove that the forgery which my uncle would in all probability produce was not the genuine testament and as the date would inevitably be subsequent to the one I held, it would annul any former bequest. As to my tale about burning the will, 
that might or might not be treated as a story trumped up for the occasion. I had no witnesses to prove the fact, and though appearances were certainly in my favor, yet the case could only be decided according to evidence. With great reluctance I consented to take a part in the scheme he chalked out for my guidance, and on the third day from my arrival I walked a few miles from the village, returning by the mail, that it might appear as if I had only just arrived. On being set down at my uncle's, I had the satisfaction to find, as far as could be gathered from his manner, that he had no idea of my recent sojourn in the neighborhood. Of course, the conversation turned on the death of my revered parents, and the way in which their property had been disposed of. I can only repeat, continued he, what I, as the only executor under your father's will, was commissioned to inform you at his decease. The property was heavily mortgaged before your departure, and its continued depression in value, arising from causes that could not have been foreseen, left the executor no other alternative but that of giving the creditors possession. The will is here, said he, taking out a paper, neatly folded and mounted with red tape, from a bureau. It is necessarily brief, and merely enumerates the names of the mortgagees and amounts owing. I was unfortunately the principal creditor, having been a considerable loser from my wish to preserve the property inviolate. For the credit of the family I paid off the remaining encumbrances, and the estate has lapsed to me as the lawful possessor. He placed a document in my hands. I read in it a very technical tribute of testamentary gratitude to Matthew Somerville, Esquire, styled therein, Beloved Brother, and a slight mention of my name, but no bequest, save that of recommending me to the kindness of my relative, in case it should please heaven to send me once more to my native shores. I was aware he would be on the watch, guarded therefore against any expression of my feelings. I eagerly perused the deed, and with a sigh, which he would naturally attribute to any cause but the real one, I returned it to his hands. I find said he, from your letter received on the twenty-third current, that you are not making a long stay in this neighborhood. It is better, perhaps, that you should not. The old house is sadly out of repair. Three years ago next May, David Dobbins, the tenant under lease from me, left it, and I have not yet been able to meet with another occupant fully to my satisfaction. Indeed, I have some intention of pulling down the house and disposing of the materials." "'Pulling it down?' I exclaimed, with indignation. "'Yes, that is, it is so untenable. So what shall I call it, that nobody cares to live there?' "'I hope it is not haunted.' "'Haunted?' exclaimed he, surveying me with a severe and scrutinizing glance. "'What should have put that into your head?' I was afraid I had said too much, and anxious to allay the suspicion I saw gathering in his countenance. "'Nay, uncle,' I quickly rejoined, "'but you seem so afraid of speaking out upon the matter "'that I thought there must needs be a ghost at the bottom of it.' "'Ah, as for that,' said he carelessly, "'the foolish farmer and his wife did hint something of the sort, "'but it is well known that I pay no attention to such tales. "'The long and the short of it, I fancy, "'was that they were tired of their bargain "'and wanted me to take it off their hands. Here. Honest Gilbert entered to say that Mr. Latitat would be glad to have a word with his master. 
Tell Mr. Ladatat to walk in. We have no secrets here. Excuse me, nephew. This man is one of our lawyers from W. He has nothing to communicate but what you may hear, I dare say. If he should have any private business, you can step into the next room. The attorney entering, I was introduced as nephew to Mr. Somerville, just arrived from the Indies, and so forth. Standing, Mr. Ladatat performed due obeisance. Sit down, sit down, Mr. Ladatat, cried my uncle. You need not be bowing there for a job. Poor fellow, he has not much left to grease the paws of a lawyer. Well, sir, your errand. I came, Mr. Somerville, respecting the manor house. Perhaps you will not have any objections to a tenant. I cannot say just now. I have had some thoughts of pulling it down. Sir, you would not demolish a building. The growth of centuries, a family mansion, been in descent since James's time. It would be barbarous. The antiques would be uh, about your ears. I care nothing for the antiquities, and moreover, I do not choose to let the house. Any further business with me this morning, sir? Nothing of consequence. I only came about the house. Pray, Mr. Latitat, said I, what sort of a tenant have you in view? One you could recommend. I think my uncle has more regard for the old mansion house of the Etheringtons than comports with the outrage he threatens. The will says, if I read aright, that the house and property may be sold, should the executor see fit. But as to pulling it down, I am sure my father never meant anything so deplorable. Allow me another glance at that paper. Please to observe, nephew, that the will makes it mine, and as such I have a right to dispose of the whole in such manner as I may deem best. If you have any doubts, I refer you to Mr. Latitat, who sits smiling at your unlawyer-like opinions. Pray, allow me one moment, said the curious Mr. Latitat. He looked at the signature, and that of the parties witnessing. Martha Somerville, your late sister, I presume? My uncle nodded assent. Gilbert Buntwizzle, your servant. The same. To what purpose, sir, are these questions? Angrily inquired my uncle. Merely matters of form, a habit we lawyers cannot easily throw aside whenever we get sight of musty parchments. I hope you will pardon my freedom. Oh, as for that, you are welcome to ask as many questions as you think proper. They will be easily answered, I take it. Doubtless, said the persevering man of words. Whenever I take up a deed, for instance, it is just the habit of the thing, Mr. Somerville. I always look at it as a banker looks at a note. He could not, for the life of him, gather one up without first ascertaining that it was genuine. Genuine! exclaimed my uncle, thrown off his guard. You do not suspect that I have forged it. Forged it? How could that enter your head, Mr. Somerville? I should as soon suspect you of forging a banknote or coining a guinea. Ringing a guinea, Mr. Somerville, does not at all imply that the payee suspects the payer to be an adept in that ingenious and much-abused art. We should be prodigiously surprised, Mr. Somerville, if the payer was to start up in a tantrum and say, Do you suspect me, sir, of having coined it? Mr. Latitat, if you came hither for the purpose of insulting me... I came here on no such business, Mr. Somerville. But as you seem disposed to be capacious... 
I will make free to say, and it would be the opinion of ninety-nine hundredths of the profession, that it might possibly have been a little more satisfactory to the heir apparent had the witnesses to this the most solemn and important act of a man's life been any other than, firstly, a defunct sister to the party claiming the whole residue, and secondly, Mr. Gilbert Buntwistle, his servant. Nay, Mr. Somerville, said the pertinacious lawyer, rising, I do not wish to use more circumlocution than is necessary. I have stated my suspicions, and if you are an honest man, you can have no objections, at least, to satisfy your nephew on the subject, who seems to say the truth, much astonished at our accidental parley. And pray, who made you a ruler and a judge between us? I have no business with it, I own, but as you seem rather angry, I made bold to give an opinion on the little technicalities aforesaid. If Mr. Etherington chooses, addressing himself to me, the matter is now at rest. Of course, I replied, Mr. Somerville will be ready to give every satisfaction that may be required, as regards the validity of the witnesses. I request, uncle, that you will not lose one moment in rebutting his insinuations. For your own sake and mine, it is not proper that your conduct should go forth to the world in the shape in which this gentleman may think fit to represent it. If he dare speak one word. Nay, uncle, that is not the way to stop folks' mouths nowadays. Nothing but the actual gag, or a line of conduct that courts no favor and requires no concealment, will pass current with the world. I request, sir, addressing myself to Latitat, that you will not leave the house until you have given Mr. Somerville the opportunity of cleaning himself from any blame in this transaction. As matters have assumed this posture, said Mr. Latitat, I should be deficient in respect to the profession, of which I have the honor to be a member. Did I not justify my conduct in the best manner I am able? Have I liberty to proceed? Proceed as you like. You will not prove the testament to be a forgery. The signing and witnessing were done in my presence, said Mr. Somerville. He rose from his chair instinctively locked up his bureau, and, if such stern features could assume an aspect of still greater asperity, it was when the interrogator thus continued, You were, as you observe, Mr. Somerville, a witness to the due subscription of this deed. If I am to clear myself from the imputation of unjustifiable curiosity, I must beg leave to examine yourself, and the surviving witness apart, merely as to the minutiae, of the circumstances under which it was finally completed. For instance, was the late Mr. Etherington in bed? Was he sick or well when the deed was executed? A cadaverous hue stole over the dark features of the culprit, their aspect varying and distorted, in which fear and deadly anger painfully strove for preeminence. And wherefore apart, said he with a hideous grin, he stamped suddenly on the floor. If that summons be for your servant, you might have saved yourself the trouble, Mr. Somerville, said Latitat with great coolness and intrepidity. Gilbert is at my office, whether I sent him on an errand, thinking he would be at best out of the way for a while. I find, however, that we shall have need of him. It is as well, nevertheless, that he is out of the reach of signals. 
A base conspiracy, roared the infuriated villain. Nephew, how is this? And in my own house, bullied, baited. But I will be revenged, I will. Here he became exhausted with rage and sat down. When Mr. Laddett had attempting to speak, he cried out, I will answer no questions, and I defy you. Gilbert may say what he likes, but he cannot contradict my words. I'll speak none. These would be strange words indeed, Mr. Somerville, from an innocent man. Know you that will? said the lawyer, in a voice of thunder, at the same time exhibiting the real instrument so miraculously preserved from destruction. I shall never forget his first look of horror and astonishment. Had a spectre risen up, arrayed in all the terrors of the prison house, he could not have exhibited more appalling symptoms of unmitigated despair. He shuddered audibly. It was the very crisis of his agony. A portentous silence ensued. Some minutes elapsed before it was interrupted. Mr. Lattitab was the first to break so disagreeable a pause. Mr. Somerville, it is useless to carry on this scene of duplicity. Neither party would be benefited by it. You have forged that deed. We have sufficient evidence of your attempt to destroy this document I now hold, and the very mansion which your own hallowed hands would, but for the direct interposition of Providence, have leveled with the dust. On one condition, and on only one, your conduct shall be concealed from the knowledge of your fellow men. The eye of Providence alone is hitherto tracked the torturous course of your villainy. On one condition, I say, the past is forever concealed from the eye of the world. Another pause. My uncle groaned in the agony of his spirit. Had his heart's blood been at stake, he could not have evinced a greater reluctance than he now showed at the thoughts of relinquishing his ill-gotten wealth. What is it? Destroy with your own hands that forged testimony of your guilt. Your nephew does not wish to bring an old man's gray hairs to an ignominious grave. He took the deed, and, turning aside his head, committed it to the flames. He appeared to breathe more freely when it was consumed, but the struggle had been too severe even for his unyielding frame, iron-bound though it seemed. As he turned trembling from the hearth, he sank into his chair, threw his hands over his face, and groaned deeply. The next moment he fixed his eyes steadily on me. A glassy brightness suddenly shot over them. A dimness followed like the shadows of death. He held out his hand, his head bowed, and he bade adieu to the world and its interests forever. End of Section 3 Read by Greg Giordano Newport Ritchie, Florida